0: going to read now uh, romans 12 and verses 9 through 21 the passage that uh, johnny will be speaking from it's called the marks of the true christian it says this let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
1: Well, good morning. And uh, let me add my welcome to Derek's if we haven't uh, met before. My name is Johnny. I'm the the new pastor here at Hebron. Uh, And as a family, uh, it's our first Sunday here formally. And so let me also uh, just take the opportunity to thank you all very, very much uh, for your kindness to us and for your help of us as a family as we've made the move from Edinburgh to Aberdeen over the past few weeks and we do realise it's been in quite a long time since you actually appointed me to the role some of, might, some of you might well have forgotten that you'd actually made the appointment it's been that long that delay is absolutely our fault it was to allow time for me to finish theological studies in Edinburgh, and for Fiona to finish her, her job, she was a school teacher to finish the academic year before making the move up. But we are now here. We've moved into our home. There are still boxes unpacked, but they will be taken care of over time but we are very, very thankful to be here. Now, as Derek mentioned, we're um, are going to be carrying on the series in Romans. It will carry that on over the next few Sunday mornings. And we're picking up this morning in Romans chapter 12 and verses 9 to 21. And it would be a help to me and a trust to you if you have a Bible, whether in a, um, a paper copy or on a phone or device, to have that open in front of you as we think about it together over the next few minutes. And, but before we do that, let me pray for us before we think about those verses together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you and praise you as a good and a kind God. And that even though in your fullness you're bigger and more wonderful than any of us can fully understand right now, that you have nonetheless revealed yourself to us in a comprehensible way in the Bible. We pray now that as we think about this particular part of the Bible together over the next few minutes, you would please grow us in our understanding of you, our appreciation of you, and in each of our desires to serve you as we serve one another as a church family. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Um, well, let me begin uh, this morning with a question for you. Um, there we go, there's a question. Thank you, Johan. The um, question is, who is involved in your worship of God? Who is involved in your worship of God? Now, as you'll soon find out, I am prone to asking uh, pretty simple sounding questions. And that might sound like simple question 101. Who is involved in your worship? of God? The answer's in the question, isn't it? Fairly obviously there are two parties involved, aren't there? There is you and there is God. And that often cashes out in, in how Christians use words like worship. A friend of mine was telling me recently about a church he visited in America, a so-called mega church in the States, where at the beginning of the service, all of the lights in the auditorium went down. So you couldn't see anyone else around you. You could see the person leading the singing, and that was it. And the idea behind it was to completely remove distractions. So you could worship God in a more focused way, like it was only you and him in the room. And it does illustrate the point, I think, that worship in many Christians' minds is a purely vertical thing. Who is involved? You And God, simple as that. Or is it? Because this morning we're going to see that the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote the letter that we read a part of a few minutes ago, well, he answers this question rather differently. We are told to to sing praise to God as part of our worship elsewhere in the Bible, and we've had a wonderful time of doing that together this morning. But... Far from being a purely vertical exercise, genuine worship of the God of the Bible, Paul will say, cashes out horizontally. What do I mean by that? Well, let me just ask you quickly to have a scan around the room for a moment. You'll often be discouraged from doing this during a talk, but here's an exception. Have a look at the other people around you in the room. Feel free to turn in your seat for just a moment and look at the other folks around you. If it doesn't feel too awkward, that should do it for now. Feel free, if it wasn't too awkward, to continue to do that after the service is finished. The reason I'm having you do that is that Paul is going to tell you that your worship of God involves all of those other people. It involves your church family. And if that's enough to make you feel a bit twitchy, if that felt awkward... Well, just wait until you hear what else Paul has to say in Romans 12. Because he tells us that our worship of God, well, it doesn't just involve fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. It also involves your enemies. People who are opposed to you because you are a Christian. That's where we're going to be heading this morning. But before we get there, it is just worth clarifying why I'm talking about worship at all. Because I did just kind of launch into that without much by way of background. And the word worship, you might have noticed, doesn't actually appear in verses 9 to 21 of Romans 12. But worship really is the ground that we're on in Romans 12. And in fact, it's the ground that we're on in much of the book of Romans So we're going to spend just a few minutes thinking about that Uh, first this morning. If you wouldn't mind popping up our next slide, please, Johan. The worldwide worship problem. Uh, Now, five or six years ago, uh, the BBC published a series of articles in which they asked 50 people, experts, so-called, in science, in technology, and in business and entrepreneurship, to name what they saw as the biggest problem in the world today. Between them, they came up with a number of contenders. Global health crises, guess more relevant today than it was a few years ago. Environmental instability. Technology and its role in society. The erosion of free speech and challenges to democracy. You might well add some more biggies to that list. But although all of those are real problems, if the BBC were to have asked Paul... I think he would tell us that each of them, though perhaps serious in various different ways to various different extents, each of them are secondary. They are symptoms, they're consequences of a much more fundamental problem facing our world. What is that problem? Well, we found out in chapter 1 of Romans. Just read that with me. Paul says this about all of humanity. Chapter 1, verse 21 says, although they, that is all people, although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals And creeping things. The world's biggest problem. Says Paul. Is a worship problem. Instead of honoring God. The creator God. Who made the world. And sustains the world. And everything in it. Including each one of us. Instead of giving him the right place in the world. And in our lives. Humanity. To a man and woman. Worshipped stuff. We gave created things the highest place in our lives, and ultimately, the Bible calls that sin. It's an act of putting something else on the throne in God's place. And throughout the, the letter to the church in Rome you've been studying over the past few months, you've seen that that sin has had terrible consequences. It's resulted in in, in relational strife between people. It's indeed resulted, the first sin resulted in a fracture of the whole of creation, the created order itself, that affects even our bodies. But most fundamentally of all, it resulted in a fracture in the relationship between God and people. Worship really is a worldwide problem, one that affects each and every one of us. And it is just worth pausing at this point and reflecting on whether that worship problem is something that you can identify in your own life. Whether the God who made you and sustains you, who has loved you beyond compare, whether He is the one who's been given the position of of, of worship in your life. Because the Bible's answer, again, to a man and woman is no he isn't. He hasn't been, not for any one of us. There is a worldwide worship problem. It's a serious problem. And it's a problem in which you and I have all been implicated. But again, what does that have to do with our passage in Romans 12? Well, quite a lot, actually. It helps us to understand what's going on in Romans 12. And in all that follows... Let me explain. If you just look back to Romans 12, if you have a Bible in front of you, look back to that, Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 for a moment. If you could change the slide on, please, Joanne, that would be very helpful. Thank you. Great. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now this worldwide worship problem is relevant to Romans 12, firstly because it helps us to understand what Paul means when he says, by the mercies of God. That's the basis for the appeal he's going to make over the course of the next few weeks. None of us have worshipped God as we ought, and that is a serious thing, and by rights, God should turn his back on us, should judge us, but rather than treating us as our treatment of him deserves, he's shown mercy extraordinary, undeserved kindness by sending his own son to bear the judgment we deserve on his own shoulders that we might be welcomed into his family. And that means that everything that's coming in Romans 12, the appeal Paul's making, the commands he's going to make of us, they aren't just white-knuckled religion. Okay, Doing what Paul tells us to do in Romans 12 is not how we make ourselves right with God again. Because only God could do that. And God has done it decisively, wonderfully, gloriously at the cross of the Lord Jesus. And so Romans 12 is an appeal to respond to the kindness God has shown us, rescuing those of us who trust in him from the consequences of that worldwide worship problem. That's the first reason that's relevant to Romans 12 because all of it hinges on the mercies of God But the second reason that the worldwide worship problem is relevant to Romans 12 is that if Romans 1 shows us what problem worship looks like, defective worship looks like, well, chapter 12 is showing us something of what the real deal looks like. He's painting a picture of God honoring worship. And it isn't a vague picture. We saw that last Sunday in Willie speaking at the first part of Romans 12. It's borne out in how we use our gifts as part of a body. A church family with each limb or part playing its own role. And this week, Paul takes us a step further than that. We don't just relate to one another as, as limbs of a body, though we do. We relate to one another as a loving family. We relate to one another humbly and committedly. Let's think about that for a few minutes now. Genuine worship of God involves loving one another humbly and committedly. Next slide, please, Johan. Thank you. Now, it is worth saying that as you read through verses 9 to 21 of Romans 12, it's quite tricky to sum up really neatly. Okay? Because he kind of peppers his readers with what looks like 15 or 20 kind of different commands. And when you read them, they might sound a bit random, But there are a couple of principles that they seem to have in common with one another. Just see if you can spot what the first of those might be. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Remember, Paul's writing to a church in Rome. And there's a clear focus in what he tells them on, on one another. That one way in which they worship God is how they treat one another. And he gives a number of specific commands about what that looks like. But one idea that seems to undergird them all is a humble, other-person-centred love. Putting brothers and sisters' interests ahead of our own. We've seen that in verses 9 and 10, the call to love one another. But read on through Romans 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints, of other Christians. Seek to show hospitality. In other words, use your stuff, your resources, to bless your brothers and sisters. Carries on, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Your brothers and sisters' joy becomes your joy, you're so committed to them. And even more so, Well, their weeping, their sadness is yours also. When it comes to Christian worship, the real deal, authentic Christian worship, well, it doesn't look anything like turning the lights out so we can't see each other when we're singing. Can you see that? It's the opposite. It looks like humble, other person centered love for our brothers and sisters. And it is a real challenge, certainly has been to me, of how we think of worshipping God, isn't it? Now Fiona and I left Hebron in 2011, we were here as students for a few years before that. And it is just worth saying that this characteristic of, of genuine love for one another as a church family is something that we really associate with our time here. I'm not just saying that, it really is. It's something we've spoken about numerous times over the past few years. And whilst 11 years is a long time, and there have been many folks whom we don't yet know and look forward to getting to know, we've been here and I've been uh, doing this role for, for under one week. And over that time, two people, independently of one another, have spoken to me of the wonderful way in which they've been cared for by this church family. And it is important to to note that. that There are evidences of God bringing about a transformation in people across this church family. Where they put other people's interests ahead of their own. That is a wonderful thing. It's something to be encouraged about. But whilst it is true, it is nonetheless worth thinking about ways in which we can grow. can grow together in worshipping God by how we treat one another. Perhaps we come along to a service on a Sunday but we're invariably out of the door at the end faster than the band can play their final chord. Not because we've got somewhere else we really need to be necessarily but because, well, frankly, speaking to people can be a bit of a hassle. Church is much easier without it. Because people can be difficult. They can be awkward. People like me might ask you to look at one another and make it even more awkward. Let me give you another example. Perhaps you've been coming to church on a Sunday for a long, long time and you've never really considered getting involved in something either like a home group or in regularly serving as part of the church family. Now again, there may well be legitimate reasons for that. This isn't digging anyone out at all, I promise you. But it is just worth clocking that in a church family that's the size of Hebron, Well, a context like home groups, smaller groups of Christians reading the Bible and praying together week by week, getting to know one another really well and praying into real life situations, it's such a great environment for genuine love to be expressed regularly, to know and to be known by other Christian folks. As is serving for that matter, perhaps as part of a small team, Folks, we get to know and work alongside as we serve together. There are plenty of serving needs across the church family. There always are. And very practically, if if you're interested in getting involved, either in a home group or in serving, speak to me after the service. I might not know exactly what the needs are quite yet, but I'll try and link you up with the folks who do. Or speak to Derek. Get in touch with with Sally, who's playing piano uh, this morning. We would love to hear from you. That's a very practical way in which this might cash out. Because as Christians, we worship God by loving one another committedly. That's our second point this morning. But you might have noticed, Paul doesn't just talk about one another's in Romans 12. He takes things in an even more surprising direction than that. And we're going to think about that under our final heading this morning. Next slide, please, Uh, Johan. As Christians, genuine worship of God involves loving the hateful. Now, as a parent of young children, it becomes fairly obvious, fairly quickly, that we don't have to be taught how to retaliate. When a toy is snatched, and for toddlers, toys are never usually taken, they're usually snatched, or when a queue is jumped, well, the sense of injustice in a little mind just becomes unbearable. And the way to quench that sense of injustice usually feels, well, immediate and and often is physical. Physical. You stamped on my toe, I'll stamp on yours. You snatched my toy, I'll snatch yours back. And most of us learn how to kind of modify that impulse as we get a bit older, I hope. Uh, we tend to modify that impulse a little bit. But it doesn't necessarily go away, does it? Rather than snatching back, well, we quietly seethe, don't we? may not strike back in the heat of the moment, but the wonderful words of, of Robert Burns We nurse our wrath to keep it warm. We hold on to that sense of injustice and we use it later. And it's worth acknowledging that Christians may well have plenty of reasons to want to retaliate. Why do I say that? Well, because when you follow Jesus, people will give you a hard time for following Jesus. Jesus told us to expect as much. He said, if they persecuted you, if persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But in Romans 12, Paul tells the Christians in Rome how to respond to that kind of treatment. And it might come as a bit of a surprise. Read with me again, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. we might expect that it's just enough as a Christian to remain faithful to God in the face of persecution. That all God really wants of us is that we don't crumble and we stick with Jesus. But can you see, Paul takes us a step further than that. He says, when you're persecuted, repay that persecution, not with cursing, not even with silence and gentle stoicism. Repay it with blessing, he says. Now you may well be reflecting just now on times when people have treated you unfairly simply by virtue of being a Christian. And perhaps you're asking yourself, how on earth is it possible to, to repay them with blessing? How is it possible to somebody who, to, to, to love someone like that who's just caused you so much grief unnecessarily it feels unjust, doesn't it? Paul says it's possible when we know that that grief, that injustice, Well, it's not going to be swept under the carpet. God sees all. And he's a far better judge of what's right and what's wrong than we are. So, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now the Christians to whom Paul's writing were a vulnerable, tiny minority. Shortly after Paul sent this letter to the church in Rome, a great fire broke out in Rome, and uh, the emperor of the time, the infamous emperor Nero, blamed Christians for the blaze in order that pressure might be ramped up on the Christian community, tiny as they were. And so as a Roman Christian reading Paul's letter, being told to forgive your enemies, you might well conclude that that justice is never going to be done. Their persecutors are just going to get away with it. Someone like Nero, of course I can't touch him. Paul says, no, no, don't worry about that. God will see justice being done. God will vindicate faithful followers. And so what's left for you to do is not to hate someone who hates you, but to do good to them. And in fact, he's saying that by doing that, by loving the hateful, overcoming evil with good, they're offering worship to God. It's an extraordinary thing. Now, things aren't as extreme here for Christians in Scotland today as they were for Roman Christians in the first century, or indeed as they are in the rest of the world right now. I suspect if I were to be preaching about this passage in China today, my applications would be somewhat different. But it does imply here, because we do face opposition in various different stripes when we follow Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, just take a a moment to think through how it is that you do face some kind of pushback for being a Christian. It might be from a family member, a parent or a sibling or one of your children who think you're absolutely crazy for following Jesus. Why would you waste your life like that? Of course you love your family member, And of course, the fact they give you a hard time isn't going to change that. But it can be easy over time to begin to feel embittered towards people, even people we love, under the drip, drip, drip of pressure like that. Perhaps the opposition comes from folks at work, making snide comments about you, excluding you from from, from conversations. Maybe it's even even a bigger deal than that. Maybe you're overlooked for promotion. You have been again and again and again and again. Because you won't join in with office gossip like everyone else. And because you don't make such a big deal of office nights out as everyone else seems to. And because people know you're a Christian. And you're different. And it's pretty easy to see why biting back feels like an attractive option. They make life difficult for you. How can you make life difficult for them in return? Paul says no. That may be what other folks do. But listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, that isn't who you are anymore. You've been rescued by the grace of God and treated as you don't deserve. You've been called not to be conformed to how the world does things, but to be transformed, to look different. And listen, you know that God sees it all. And you know that God will one day put it all right. So rather than storing up wrath for people who made life difficult for you as a Christian nursing it to keep it warm do good to them even if you get nothing but hassle back be known in your office as the first person to show an interest in them in their lives, in their families Now I know it can be difficult to do and we do need the Lord's help And we need one another's encouragement as we try and do that day by day. But it's part of what genuine worship of the God of the Bible, responding to his mercies towards us. This is part of what it looks like. Uh, Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, all of this talk of of kind of facing opposition and pushback for being a Christian but sticking with Jesus anyway, uh, I'm conscious that it might well sound a bit weird for want of a better phrase. Firstly, let me just say that if that is you, if, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, we are really delighted to have you here this morning. Really, really pleased. And we do hope that you come back over the course of the next few weeks. And let me also just say to you that I can understand why some of that might sound a bit strange. I hope in the first instance, though, you've been able to see that what we're talking about this morning it isn't my bright idea. I tend to have none of those. It's an idea from the Bible, Okay. And all I would ask of you this morning is to be mindful of the stakes involved in how you respond to hearing about the worldwide worship problem we've thought about together. That God deserves the worship of everyone on this planet, but that none of us have given it to him. Now you might brush that idea off, of course, you might think it isn't really pertinent to you, it's just made up, it's it's that guy's idea. That's one response. Perhaps you wouldn't brush the whole thing off though. Perhaps you can see why it would be a big deal that you haven't honoured the creator God as you ought. But what God asks of you, asking for wholehearted worship of him, even when it means taking flack from people around you, from family members, from colleagues, well, he's just asking a bit much. Well, it is worth saying that all of that's true and then some. God wants all of you. He wants a wholehearted, whole life commitment to him. Jesus didn't hide that. He called people to take up a cross in order to follow him. But can I please say to you this morning that Jesus isn't trying to steal joy or life from you. By asking you to give up your life for him, he's not taking anything from you but giving to you. He came to rescue you, to extend extraordinary mercy towards you, to welcome you into abundant, eternal life. So can I please ask you not to brush Jesus off like that? Think it's just not pertinent to you. At the very least, find out about him. Find out what you're brushing off. Find out who you're brushing off. Come and chat to me or to Derek after the service. We'd love to do that with you. I'd love to read one of the, the, the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible with you. If you'd be up for a meeting with me to do that. Or try and read it yourself. But the stakes are huge. Because this worldwide worship problem really is worldwide. And it is so important that you know that. And you don't think this doesn't apply to you. Because it does. And to those of us who are Christians, well, let's just listen to Paul's appeal to us this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And what does that look like? Well, it isn't just a vertical thing. It looks like loving one another, humbly, and committedly. And it even looks like loving the hateful. Now, we each need the Lord's help as we look to do that day by day. We need it into this coming week. So let's ask for His help to do that just now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, as, as we think on your mercy to us this morning, We can't help but be humbled. The extraordinary kindness you've shown towards us at the cross to folks who have rebelled against you, not given you the right place in our lives or in our world. That you have forgiven us, rescued us to yourself, welcomed us into your family, offered us abundant eternal life. Help us to grasp all that you have achieved for us and each one lead each one of us to rejoice in that together this morning. Let that mercy change us, we pray as we consider it together, transform us by your holy Spirit. And may our love for you and thankfulness towards you for that mercy Well, may it be so clear from the ways in which we love one another. Help us, Lord, to worship you as we serve one another, as we love one another. And Lord, even from the ways in which we respond to those who oppose us for holding out the good news of Jesus. We ask each of these things in your precious name and for your sake. Amen.